Hello, and welcome to another episode of This is HGD. My name is Adrienne Tan, and in my day job, I'm a product management practitioner based in Australia. Before we jump in, however, as this podcast is recorded in Sydney, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the land where we meet today and pay respect to their elders, both past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who might be listening in today. In this episode, we caught up with Kirsten Mann, the VP of Product and Experience at Aconex. We discuss how organisations are not designed to value design. A pretty large topic. According to Kirsten, in order to bring the benefits of design to bear, organisations should expand their short-term horizons and look for other outcomes apart from financially motivated results. In order to do that as designers and product folks, we need to influence the executive conversation, be brave and lead from where we are. Kirsten, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became involved in human-centred design. Well, I've been in this field for a long time now. It's over 20 years. And um, really got into this because... My first gig, I had to actually start creating a system and I asked, who's using this? And there was this blank look because in those days, when you're working at a consulting firm, you're just delivering something for a client. And they said, oh, we don't really know, but this is the brief and this is what we're kind of working towards. And so it really started way back then of identifying who is the person who's going to be using this thing, going and talking to them, see what their problems were. And that's how I started off in the whole human-centered design field. It was called um, HCI back then, human-computer interaction. And what's fantastic is over the last 10 years, it's really matured into its own discipline. And I think people have recognised the importance of having this focus in creating products and experiences. So luckily, I've kind of been able to go through that journey. And so it's been a while, a long journey, as you say. What are some of the changes that you've seen over this time? I think, well, one, as I just mentioned before, is the recognition that it is an actual discipline, right? It used to kind of be as an afterthought. And when I first started doing this more and more, it was always people, they would say, right, we've got to get this thing delivered. We've got to kind of go through this brief. And it was really when things went wrong that they thought, oh, hold on, how do we fix this? And then it was they'd start the cycle of the people usability testing was kind of the first foray into that where they'd involve the user after. It was really too late. So you were kind of doing these tweaks and things to a pretty shoddy experience half the time. And it was about, for me, it was we have to be further up the decision chain. We have to be there when they're making the decision on what to create and why and help drive that decision. So I think that's where I started to see the movement move, really, and all people in this discipline started to work up the food chain and prove the need for that thinking to happen up front. We've seen other changes come into the industry with things like design thinking. And I'm sure user experience people who'd been doing this for a while thought, hold on, (laughs) isn't that what we've always been doing? What the hell? It's got this cool name that IDEO has gone and coined and now everybody's thinking it's this new thing. I remember thinking that. But what I think with design thinking, one of the great things that came, it was kind of packaged for business people to understand. So then they started saying, hey, we 
need to do this great thing. We need to put people at the centre of what we're doing because they're the ones that ultimately need to interact and use these things. So there's been tools that have come into play where people now have user experience professionals, even people who aren't necessarily designers, can help visualise workflows and show the experience that people were going through when they're interacting with the system. So I think the the language has evolved, the tools have evolved, the understanding has evolved, and people are seeing the importance right across organisations for a focus on user experience. Now, that's a really good introduction, essentially, to the topic that we're talking about today. Hmm. You know, we've seen this incremental change over a period of time where design has been post-experience when we've put something out and we've discovered that there might be a problem, but now we're bringing the customer up front mm-hmm. and we're making sure that we're considering their problems. But your topic is very intriguing. Um, you want to talk about companies are not designed to value design, mm. which is, you know, we're at a point where we've made all these changes, but yet we, by the sounds of it, we haven't really gotten there yet. No. And and it's that's where you, you kind of come up this path and you think, hey, we're there. And then you clock, you hear things. And I was thinking about this a number of months ago where a gentleman by the name of Burnett um, had got a number of user experience professionals together and said, what do we need to do as a discipline for people fellow practitioners and for us to kind of be able to spread what we do. And there was this discussion and people were saying, oh, you know, if we kind of have better tools or we break down our process and all of that. And I said, you know what, it doesn't matter what we do. If people above who make the decisions don't get it, then you can do all of these wonderful things of process and it will just be overwritten. So what we really need to do is we've got to educate the C-suite. And they need to understand because ultimately they're making the call on these big strategic processes and projects, right? And if they don't get it, then no matter what's happening underneath with all the other people down below, it will be kiboshed. So for me, it was, okay, we actually need something which helps educate execs on the value of UX. And then you say, okay, well... Some of them get it, right? Or they think, hey, I'm Steve Jobs. I'm like him. (laughs) I'm going to have this vision. And don't really understand then what comes behind that and what that really means. And think that user experience is about somebody having this great idea, like the iPhone, and everybody else falls into line behind the vision, right? And we know it's not that, right? So in some ways, Apple and everything have done a great job of educating around the importance of user experience and have created things that are delightful, right? And the opening the box experience we all heard about when people got their iPhone or, you know, making sure that the aesthetic aspects with a product were so important. But I think what hasn't really happened is what does our leaders and our executives need to understand that what goes into this profession, what goes into these decisions to ultimately create good experiences. And why is that? It's because we're not set up as in organisations to view experience in everything is commercialised, right? What is the direct return for this thing that we're investing? And it's hard to put a measure on something that's a bit, you know, you know when it's not there, There's a number of agitation that we're seeing in the industry around this. Um, There was this great article that came out, I think it was in um, August recently, and it was in 
co-design under Fast Company, and it was design is inherently an unethical industry. But what that was really talking about was we're in this crisis at the moment because the way that we value things is the direct commercial return. So how much money are we going to get for this thing? And it's very hard to put a measure on, well, actually, are we designing for something, somebody in the right thing in the first place? And have we actually um, made people's lives better? And so the obligation isn't necessarily always to the customer, it's to shareholders, it's to employees, and it's to the company itself, not necessarily customers. And that's the way organisations are designed a lot of the time, unfortunately. But that's bigger than organisational structure. That's essentially the economic foundation in which we live in, and that's essentially capitalism. <laughs> and there lies the problem. <laughs> and look, it's not – you've got to have a balance, right? So there was this other – I mean, I was reading this other really interesting article around how do you get CFOs to value design? And – Again, because a lot of these guys have come from tangible projects. They're implementing a system, right? And we have this, we know what our business objective is. We know the things that this system has to do. Let's work through this project. However, when you're dealing with products and experiences, you're dealing with behaviour. It's customer behaviour. And that is not a predictable thing, right? We can't, no matter what we say, no matter what, we can research things, we can give indications. You do not know behaviour till you see it in play. So what you need to be able to do is be set up to respond to that behaviour. And so I think we're seeing a drive in industry now to be outcome-driven, okay, and to put measures in place that track towards behaviour. But again, how many organisations do you know which have realigned around that type of thinking? Not many. Yeah. <laughs> Not many. We think behaviour is predictable. We'll put something out there. We'll know how much people will pay. We'll know exactly what people will do. And what happens? We release this stuff and it's a free-for-all, right? So we can anticipate workflows and that's what we do as a designer and try to take people through the best path. But you really don't know what's going on until you actually put something into play. And it's within an ecosystem of other interactions and other products. And that's what's feeding into your product. So other products are setting people's expectations. So they're going and using this and they come to your product and think that it should behave the same because that's the standard that's been set. But also there's other distractions, there's other priorities. You can't forecast that and predict that in a design. And so all we can do is be able to be set up to respond and that's why I don't think organisations are very well geared towards. And again, this thinking's been around for a long time, the OODA loop, right? <laughs> it's been back since wartime and where they were basically uh, saying... we know. <laughs> yep. And, but what was that always about? It was about saying, okay, let's at least observe and orientate and then act and respond when something's going on, right? But we somehow think that products and experiences are this box and tangible and that if we put in teams and we set them off and we'll have these defined delivery dates and everything will be fine and that's not experience and I think for me that's probably the challenge right we how do we educate executives in the c-suite around things should need to be outcome driven and because we're dealing in an unpredictable space and I'm referring, obviously, to our digital environments. It's different in some in when you're dealing with certain products that are physical and things as well, but I think they still have elements that play into that as well. 
So we talked a lot about leadership and we talked a lot about structure and potentially restructuring our businesses to respond to change and customer behavior. Are there other elements that we need to consider? Yeah, well, it's getting the people ready too, right? So probably one of the realizations, and I'll give you an example here. I, I built a team and group at MYB. And that was done over a period of time. Like it wasn't a, a slope. <laughs> it was, a, you know, an investment of six years of my life. And we had a great team. Like they were highly competent people doing great stuff. And, you know, if you think about the maturity matrix that UX is sometimes measured by, we'd gone up that chain, right? We'd had all the, we had embedded teams, we had teams embedded with UX, they were right in the strategic decisions flowing through. So we'd kind of done the steps that you're meant to get to organisational maturity. So I left and within probably 18 months, the whole thing had dissolved, right? And they were left with one poor designer, (laughs) to kind of, you know, UXer who was paid very well to support a lot of products. And initially I was like, oh, what happened? Like, you know, and bad me for not creating a sustainable environment, you know. But I looked at it and we'd, out of every organisation I've worked, we'd created really documented process. We'd had people understood the rules of engagement, all of those kind of things, what's required for the roles in the teams. But what happened, there wasn't a strong voice anymore at the senior leadership level to say, hey, this is really key for us. And then they tried with different incarnations and I know other people came in and and had the same message. But once you've lost that momentum, it's very hard to rebuild that trust and that structure. So what, what is that? And I think ultimately we need people in there who continue to drive these messages but are empowered. So that's why it's important that we have leaders who have product, who have user experience experience in that C-suite and in that executive because they balance the decisions. Otherwise, it's very easy to marginalise what it takes to build and maintain those disciplines. And unfortunately, I think that's what happened there. So... What do people need? You need people who actually get this, but you need the leadership right from the top as well. And you need an organisation to have bought in that it's valuable to have that leadership at the top. And sometimes you've seen a lot of organisations, Adrian, <laughs> where, where that is. And Okay, so where do you usually see that? It's usually kind of in delivery teams or down the totem pole. Not many companies have got it. That has to have an equal seat in that executive suite. Well, see, I think that design is like good exercise and nutrition, right? I think it's about behavior. I think it's about changing your mindset and establishing good rituals. And and I I agree, right? But who's going to teach you how to do exercise? Who's going to be there? Like, why do we have personal trainers? It's that constant tweaking and motivation and drive and you can kind of work out a program or you can kind of somebody can set you a program and then you go along but exercise is you know it's one of those things that we should all do and I call it the broccoli principle right 
We all know that we should be eating broccoli and vegetables, <laughs> but do we do it? No. <laughs> so people know they should be. But if you haven't got somebody there, like the dietitian, like the PT, helping to drive that message and change people's behaviour and check in on that, then it's easy for an organisation just to go, oh, yeah, we're okay. We're all exercising. We're going for a walk for two metres down to get our coffee. Hey, we're, we're great. <laughs> you know? And they're not actually having the discipline that's required to get the benefit from that. Yeah, I think you touched on a really good point, which is about behavioural change. And in order to establish change in behaviour, you need to have people coaching you. You need to have someone overseeing whether you're doing it. And it's not going to happen through process documentation or training. And I see this change. I see that organisations are bringing in these coaches. They are embedding people to try and establish a change in in people's behaviour. But yet we're still not there. So what else is kind of missing? Is it that leadership? I, I think it's 100% that, right? And it's, it's that equal voice. When we're making commercial decisions, that we are thinking of the implications to the people at all levels, right? That the people who use them are employees who need to support them, the customers who actually buy them, you know, and, and they're all different a lot of the time. But you need that perspective. Otherwise, it's about a return on a balance sheet, right? We're investing this much Mm. and we're getting this from it. And what's actually the connection piece that's in there? And that's what I think user experience and product people and things bring. They bring that connection. And without it and without that voice in there, it's very easy to be quite commercially driven without thinking of those things. And also I think it goes back to us being lazy as employees. I know sometimes... (laughs) easier just to go oh I'll just quickly get it done it's not that we know it's not the right thing to do but let's just do it anyway because it's a, something off our, our list of activities well, the, the point there too is that the phrase you hear a lot of the time oh that's not my problem mm. or they'll sort it out the mythical they'll or someone you know so someone's going to come down from the mountain <laughs> with these tablets and and fix everything and so I, I agree with you. It's got to be an element of the people there and, and the employees, but they also need to be supported. And that's where that having that leadership is so key. And I think the organisations that are getting this, what's kind of the differentiator? It's probably that. They've got that leadership in there. And, you know, we see things coming through like more recently there was the design value index that showed what design thinking was worth. And that was a really interesting tool. But obviously, you know, Ray, who I think was the person who did that, what was she trying to do? She was trying to put a valuation on design thinking so it would become a commercial balance sheet thing, right? That people would start saying, right, we can value this. We can actually know this is valuable what we're investing here. How do we demonstrate the value of design without speaking to a balance sheet or a profit and loss statement? How do we show value without talking about commercials and mm. finances? And look, it's one thing I'll just rational. I'm not saying that that's not important <laughs> in the sense that if a company hasn't got any of that, they're not in operating, right? <laughs> so I think it's not that I don't think that that's required or anything. I think sometimes you've got to have balance in that. So I think part of the way that we change the conversation is we have to start getting businesses to become outcome-driven. 
And really, okay, here's your impact metric. What is it? Increase revenue, increase your NPS score, whatever it is, and map back from that what's the behaviour that would drive that and how will we actually know the outcome for that? And then set up our teams to be tracking and talking about that and showing what's happening in progress in relation to that. And I I think sometimes we don't do ourselves justice in this way either, right? We're not having the right conversations. And we're saying, oh, this is really important for us to do this. And, oh, because the user's got a problem around this. Well, okay, hold on. What does this relate to? And what's the ultimate benefit that the company will get from this, but also the customer? Link the two together. And that saying that behaviours, we can't predict it straight away, but what we can do is monitor and and say, look, we think this demonstrates this behaviour and let's track this over a period of time. And we might be wrong, right? That we might be wrong and that's a hard thing to try to get people to buy into. But hey, let's shorten the loop so we can know really quickly if we're wrong or not. And be monitoring this. And I think when teams do this and they show that they're leading it and they're having that conversation, it changes perspective. So I think one of the things is, if you want to change the conversation with exec and senior management, you have to kind of lead it in a lot of ways and be showing them things that they want to see. And again, we know these type of people are very dashboard driven and love to see what are the levers and things that we're measuring because they want to know that there is a bit of science to it. So put it in their language. So that's one aspect with that. The other thing is there's an amazing toolbox that user experience and product people have to be able to facilitate conversation, drive conversation, unblock, you know, where people are locked in thinking one way. They can help promote divergent thinking. And so we have to, as user experience and product people, use this toolbox for that good, right? And not just in our little space and in the products we work on, across organisations. And so that's where we, we can be change agents. You can help another person in a completely different area that's got nothing to do with the product you're working on with your tools. And I think that's probably something that we've tackled here at Aconex, right? It's not just a product and user experience team. We do stuff with all different areas of the business. So what happens is that changes the conversation for those people, right? They start saying, oh, they're not just these people who are doing this thing that we don't know anything about. They start to see the skills that we bring to the rest of the business and that's valued. So start using the skills that you've been given for a broader mission and people go, oh, how much time are we allocating to that? What will be the priority? Done, right? Get used to it. And use, don't go and have a coffee with your buds on one day. Go and use that time to deal with somebody else in another area of the business and bridge. Be the bridge between those areas using your skills because I can tell you now, they need it and they love it. When you can help another group unblock their thinking and come through with an outcome that they've actually, they're the ones that have come up with it. You've just kind of helped them come to that. It's very powerful. So I think use the tools that we have for broader use, not just in your domain of what you're doing day in, day out. That's a really good point. So what you're suggesting is that we essentially take some time out and maybe that's something that's part of the change that, you know, if we were going to change organisations to value design as product and UX people, much like developers who have time off to go and tinker with new code, we have 20% time where we use our skills and tools 
to go and help other parts of the organisation solve their problems. And that's a kind of grassroots way to start to showcase the value of design and essentially make change from within. Completely. And, you know, people always say, okay, once we get allocated 20%, we'll do this, right? Show the value and then you'll get the allocation, right? So go ahead and do it. And that's where I think if you want to make change or you want people to accept a new way of thinking, sorry, you're going to have to drive it half the time. And I think people sit back and they wait for some, as I said earlier, some mythical person. Sometimes that can be the design champion if they come in at a right level. But all of us can do that. And, you know, I'm not coming from a Pollyanna attitude. I know this stuff's hard. But people often will sit there and wait for permission or for somebody to tell them to go and so somebody to tell them to go and do it, which is kind of permission. But you know, somebody to unblock everything, make it all work for me, and then I'll go and apply my stuff, right? And no, go in there. It's gonna be messy. They're gonna need help. It's not gonna have all the answers, but that's okay, right? And that's your skill as designers and user experience people. Our skills about sorting through chaos to clarity. And we have that ability, if you're a good designer usually, if if you're creating more chaos then I question your skill. But typically that's what we do, right? So use that in a completely different way because what it does is showcase but you also build relationships and that is so key for making organisations change. You'd never get people go, oh, If somebody mandates something from the top and we'll all change it or flow down and things, no, things happen by people with relationships as well, right? And that's how you really create change because you get these champions who are connecting and they think, I believe in you and I'm going to go with this, right? Even though it's a bit scary and a bit, you know, I don't know what this is going to end up being, I believe in you because you've helped me in a previous way and I know that you're trying to do good. So that's one of those key things. I think people kind of sit here and wait for something to happen and my message is don't. And it's very rare if you're doing something like that that you'll get into trouble or people will tell you off, right? As long as your intention's good, it's rare that you'll get into trouble for things like that. And if you do, you're probably not in the right organisation anyway. So get out of there and go to an organisation that appreciates you trying to make a difference. I think this is a really important point. I mean, I coach a lot of people and almost give them the permission to make change and take the lead. How do you, as a product and UX leader, give your team members the permission to go and make change? I think it's a really good question. Um, I think the key thing is that one is that you've got to establish that foundation of trust. And that they know that you'll have their back, right? So that they believe that they've got somebody who's going to be in the trenches with them. But it's also, for me, I always say, if you see problems, don't just bring me a whole set of problems. Go and help fix them as well and help identify how you'd solve them, okay? So it's also having those constant conversations with my team, with the people that they're leading, we're problem solvers. We're not just problem bringers, right? So, and people not learn pretty quickly that if you're just giving me your monkeys to take on my back, they're going to be passed right back. I want to know, what do you want to do about it? How are we going to solve this, right? And so it's making people problem solvers throughout the organisation versus thinking that the leader is going to have all the answers and push that down. And I think David Marquette, 
does it this fantastic video around it. Was it Turn the Ship Around? Was the video on this where basically he was a submarine commander and he'd learnt, spent all this time learning how to do this specific submarine and command it because it was from the top down command. And what happened? He got put on a submarine that he didn't know how to operate. And suddenly he was totally reliant on the team to be the people who were solving the problems. And you know, using him as a coach and a mentor when needed, but they were had the ability to solve their problems. They just needed to be empowered to do so. So I think that's a really important message that as leaders we need to give to our people and not just try and be this problem solver and the saviour all the time. You need your people out on the ground being able to do this themselves. And I think in terms of, you know, empowering people, sometimes as a leader, it's important to show and demonstrate humility that you don't have the answers to the problems, right? You're not the all saviour, all singing and dancing leader. The most powerful statement in this is, I do not know. And acknowledging that, right? So we don't know everything. (laughs) Somehow people sometimes try and fudge that and pretend they do have all the answers. But I think as really good user experience people that I've seen behave and leaders and things, they won't be afraid to say, I don't know, but I have a few ideas how we could kind of work it out, right? So it's not sitting there saying, I don't know. (laughs) You're actually, you've got some ideas to contribute to. That's right. So, uh, Kirsten, uh, for every guest that comes on, we have, I guess, three questions that we ask them. Um, so what's the, the one professional skill that you wish you were better at? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know if I'd limit it to one because I think there's always skills that we need to improve on and trying to get better at. But probably if I had to kind of name one versus 20, it would be at the moment I'm really I'm focusing more on the financial side actually and really being able to getting back into understanding ratios and financial metrics and so to be able to have that discussion and do so with comfort but bring my context to that too so i th- i think sometimes in certain professions we we kind of go through stages sometimes and where you've got to focus on certain things and less focus. And before my current role, I've got a pretty big budget now, but before then I had a big budget, but I wasn't having to do as much analysis around the what-ifs. It was very well kind of set. Now in my current role, I've got to do a lot of predicting. So to do that, you really want to be able to be stronger on financial ratios and things as well. So that's probably the, the thing I think I've had to brush up a bit on over the last couple of months. So is that more a, a communication thing or just, I guess, a confidence thing for you to be able to talk the talk if you need to, I guess, bring that to a higher level? Or Do you know what? In all honesty, it's an interest thing. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, it's snore. <laughs> Here I go. Um, but I've had to be more interested in it and have that curiosity around it where before it's one of those things if you don't have to worry about it as closely, you won't. Now, I think the higher up an organisation you get, the more relevant it is to have really strong financial skills. And it's not that I, you know, obviously I've had to run P&Ls and things, but you get to a different level where you have to be able to have really detailed conversations on those and predict scenarios and know the implications. So it was more to your point, being able to communicate that more clearly, but also just my comfort and interest. I had to become curious in it for it to really be able to knuckle down and do it. Cool. So second question, what is the one thing in the industry that you wish you were able to banish? 
I think contractual commitments are actually very dangerous and they create the wrong behaviour. So ideally, again, just exactly as we've been talking about driving experiences around outcomes, I think organisations need to operate in a similar way and, and treat these as learning cycles and what are the outcomes that they're driving for. Otherwise, what happens is you get a list of things delivered, but you don't really know the value that you've got from those things. So I think as an industry, we have to move away from contractual obligation and contractual commitments linked to dates, is what I should say, um, versus outcomes. So, because I think it creates the wrong type of behaviour with people. Okay, cool. And uh, last question, what is the message that you'd give to an emerging HCD talent for the future? Mm. I have this discussion with people a fair bit who are looking to get into the industry. And I think in recent times, different training institutions have made user experience seem quite glamorous, right? And so they're saying, oh, it's really cool to be a designer or it's really cool to be a user experience person. And, and that, they're doing cool stuff. They're doing lots of pictures, they're in whiteboards, they're doing customer journeys, everybody's involved and participating. And sure, there's a really great and fun element to it. But designing experience is hard. It's tough work. And you have to be able to work through the experience and design out of it. Now, and what I mean by that is people like doing the workshops and the glossy stuff and pulling the findings together and saying, hey, this is what we got from this workshop. What are you going to do about it? The what and the why are equally important, right? So you have to know why something's going on and, and the root causes behind that. But you also have to be able to lead through and say, what are you going to do about it? And I think sometimes people see design as one of those boxes. I'm going to do research. I'm going to do this. And I don't need to worry about this other stuff. And I think really good designers can do the end-to-end -end there. They can identify why something's going on and what the issue is and what's the, what's the problem we're trying to solve and all of that side, but work through and come up with something that is actually then meets people's and users' demands. And that is challenging for people to understand, right? I think people go, oh, I'm not very good at drawing or so I don't want to do that side or, you know, and it's not about that. It's being able to work through what a workflow is, what is the experience that you need to support and map that out. And so I think the key thing is knowing that doing that, you have to have a point of view, and this is the other thing I think people kind of miss. They think other people will come. I get feedback from this and I'll get all this input and, hey, it will be really cool. But you have to have a point of view through that because you'll get conflicting input, right? And so you'll go, hold on, you'll hear from one person, you'll hear from the other and you go, shit, what do I do? So you have to be able to have a point of view and know where you're going to take this as well. And I think to junior designers, it's knowing that this gig is, it takes a while to get your head around. It takes a while to get the skill to do that. So don't just think because you've done a course and you've done this end-to-end -end process that suddenly you're going to be able to do all of this, right? You need to be able to take the time to work through these areas and master them. And it will be frustrating and you'll think that you don't know what you're doing and you probably won't for a while. But it's a progression. And so I think people who know that it's going to take a while to get there are the ones that do really well. The ones that just want to be creating kind of cool stuff straight away and everybody's going to accept that and isn't this going to be fantastic? I don't think they survive. 
And because they might go okay in maybe a, in a small place where they can create a few apps that look cool and things, but if you want a sustainable career in this industry, you have to be able to design experiences that support people and help them achieve what they need to do. And to do that, you have to understand what their needs are, but then work through and keep validating that and testing that and taking input. So that's probably the key gaps I've seen. The follow-through of uh, working through it all, I suppose, yeah. Oh, it's very, very good. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today, Kirsten. You shared some wonderful insights with us. Do you have any final words? Look, I think ultimately if this wasn't such a great profession, it might have sounded a bit scary, some of the stuff I talked about, but I wouldn't have been doing it for the time I've been doing it. I think design and the fact that user experience, product folk, all of these people, we're empathetic folk generally. So it attracts a really good type of person. So I think it's a rewarding career because it's people-oriented and ultimately we are doing things that help people. And I truly believe that. I mean, my best moment is when people give feedback and say, hey, I just love this that you guys did or this has just rocked my world. That's the type of stuff we live for or I live for. So don't be too scared by some of the things I've said and um, really let's make a difference. That's the key thing I ask people in my team and the people I work with. Let's just try and make a difference. And if we've all got that attitude, we will. So thank you for talking. Pleasure. Thank you. So there we have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to be a part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishtd.com, where you can request to join the Slack community and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers and product people. Thanks for listening. See you next time.